0: You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning. My name is Alyssa Stiglitz. I serve in the premarital counseling class and in the new moms class. This morning, I'll be reading James 3, 1 through 12. So please open your Bibles with me. If you do not have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a pond yield fresh water. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Alyssa. Hey, everybody. Good morning. Um, Yeah, you know, to get up and preach a sermon is always a a weighty thing. Paul says as much in 2 Corinthians. He says, who is sufficient for these things? Like asking that question rhetorically, Uh, even to follow Christ, who's sufficient to follow Jesus? And to bear his witness. And then that elevates as a preacher how many times I come up here and I'm like, hey, listen, I'm called today to say something to you on behalf of God as an abject failure myself. And so there's a weight to it, uh, but I feel like we've only doubled down on that weight today, talking about the power of the tongue, okay? And uh, James actually stole my line at the beginning. He said, not many of you should become teachers because we all stumble in many ways, to which I say yes and amen. Um, But on the other hand, uh, this is the more significant Uh, kinds of conversations than than we can ever have to talk about the power of the tongue. It's early January, so some of us are like on day nine of keto, and I see your grumpy faces and I love you. Uh, Just kidding. Uh, Some of us have, uh, you know, just uh, adopted some new pattern of life, and hopefully that's been life-giving for you. Um, I would just put before you, as important as those things are, uh, more important is thinking all the time, constantly, about what we say and how we say it and what we don't say. I have always been haunted a little bit by Jesus's words in the Lord's Prayer where he says, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, so do you see what he just activated in that prayer? What he said was that the Christian life is not get saved, come to faith, live how you want to, aspire to some kind of moralism, go be with God and experience heaven, but rather may as much of heaven as possibly can, as much as we can contribute to that, begin right now. That's what that prayer means. And so what it also means, and James has already alluded to this, is that there are words, there is a kind of way that we speak that is uh, those words that are going with us. To say it another way, there are words and a way to speak the way we speak now. There is a kind of language, the language of the kingdom, that is not just the way we will speak in heaven. It's a way that we can actually speak to each other now. And in that sense, we can rehearse the way that we will speak before God himself, which is a crazy thing to think about, that the language of the kingdom actually begins now. And on the other side, there's a way that we speak that will not go with us into heaven. There's a way that you and I speak even now, and those words will be left behind. And I think generally, I don't think every negative word is a curse, if you will, but I think indirectly, It's contributing to a culture of less than. And what James has already said is there's a way that our words bring life and there's a way that our words don't bring life. And so what I wanna do today is I wanna talk about the language that goes with us into heaven. And then I wanna identify the language that doesn't go with us, the words that we'll leave behind. And I wanna see what the spirit can do among us as we allow him to see the power of our words together. And I wanna talk about... The language of the kingdom. So I want to start with the words that won't go with us into the kingdom of heaven. These are just a few categories that I've come up uh, with. This is not an exhaustive list. I didn't get it from an encyclopedia, if you still use such a thing. Um, These are just a few categories that the Lord put on my heart. So let's start with gossip. Okay, you'll see the definition behind you. I took this one from desiring God. I thought it was the most helpful says this. What is gossip? Gossip is derogatory information about someone that you have that is shared with others in a tone of confidentiality, that is not motivated by doing good to them, and that you are enjoying in a way that shows that your heart is not humble. Um, Again, I want to stress, I am... The, the culprit. I am not speaking to you uh, as a man with some kind of unique wisdom and authority. I'm hoping that the word of God can speak us because I have a, a a personal failure example in every one of these categories. And I know that this one touches all of us uniquely, that in some way, in some time in the past, we've contributed to or have experienced the pain of gossip. What is happening with gossip? Why do we gossip? Proverb 18:18. 18, 18, I'm sorry, Proverb 18:8 8 tells us why. It gives us the why of gossip. It says that the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels and they go down into the inner parts of the body. Why do we gossip? Because it's seductive. It makes us feel better about ourselves. You know, we're all on a quest to justify our existence. That's in our hearts. And so when we gossip about somebody, it's a way to just feel a little bit different and a little bit better than that person. And if it's not to feel better than that person per se, it's at least to believe that we have a superior wisdom than they do. What does gossip do? Uh, In a word, it destroys it destroys us proverb 11:13 says that it betrays a confidence uh, proverb 16:28 says this it says a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends what does it do it wrecks friendships proverb 26:20 20 says without wood a fire goes out and without a gossip a coral dies down Uh, Gossip keeps the toxic drama at a 10. So if you have drama around your life all the time and you're surprised, see if that correlates with gossip. Because if you're gossiping, if you're going around people and not to people and you're talking about them and you're wondering why your life is constantly dramatic and at a 10, perhaps, then scripture's just told us why. James has already said that our tongue sets a forest ablaze. We don't have many forests around us, but that one little part of our body can catch a forest on fire. He also says that our tongue is set on fire by hell. Do you know how specific that language is? It's interesting. I have heard, you know, plenty of mentors and people who I've respected in my life and a number of them like including, you know, buttoned up Bible church, kind of fundamentalist guy, all the way to like ghosty, charismatic, kind of kooky gal, like all, like in everything in between. Do you know what I've heard from some of my mentors along the way and who, what they've said, like almost to a man, to a woman is, if you let gossip into your church, your church will be destroyed because literally, I mean, James has already told us, like it's, if you let gossip into your home, into your orbit, into your friendships, into your church, you are inviting hell into that place. When you are a culture that talks around things and not to things, when you don't run to tension, but run away from tension, and you do that perpetually, you're literally setting the place on fire. And, It destroys. I'm always curious, you know, what Paul, the Apostle Paul, what burdens him, what gives him angst. He actually tells us in 2 Corinthians, if you know anything about the Corinthian church, it was a pretty wild place, a lot going on. But he shows his card, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 20, and he says what he's burdened by. He says, for I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be. And you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord and jealousy and fits of rage and selfish ambition and slander and gossip, arrogance and disorder. So Paul's concerned about it. And uh, I gotta be honest, I've been concerned from time to time, about a culture where we are unwilling to speak to people directly, where it's far easier to go around people and not to people. I know the burden in a small way that Paul's talking about. I've seen a lot of, and this isn't new to you, in your families, amongst your friends, your roommates, the potential for gossip where. We see a lack of courage, where we see a lack of directness, where we dam off the ability for grace to cover a multitude of sin. And again, I'm just so moved by people who handle things the right way. Uh, Beth Moore, if you know anything about her, um, her autobiography last year was probably the best book I read, um, All My Knotted Up Life. Um, And one of the things that she courageously speaks to in that book was uh, her own experience of being a victim of sexual abuse. And um, a few years ago, there was a moment within evangelicalism, and especially within uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, a reckoning of uh, a lot of things that had gone um, unseen and unspoken to, specifically perpetrators of abuse, whether they be people or institutions And in the midst of all this, Beth Moore tweeted, I'll I'll put it on the screen. And and this was her response to all of that. Again, herself as a victim of abuse. She said, um, if it does not make us tremble that Jesus is clearly cleaning house in his church, turning over tables and chairs, exposing what's underneath and calling us back to purity and prayer, If all it does is make us pump our fist over the exposed, or give us fodder for gossip, then we are fools. Do you see what a woman herself who had experienced the pain of this was doing in her maturity was saying, even this is not a moment for gossip. Even this is a way, even this is an example to maintain the language of the kingdom. And for us to follow scripture and do things the right way. Guys, we cannot allow for gossip in any direction, in any part of our lives, in any orbit, at Northway, in your friend groups, whatever that looks like. We cannot allow for it. You see, gossip not only disparages others, but it cheapens our character as well. And so we must grow to measure our words, including the things that we never need to say to ensure that we dignify those we are called to love and give the enemy no ground for division in this place. That's gossip. Move on to the second category here. Speculative speech. What do I mean by this? I mean uh, building a story about someone or something that is based on circumstantial insight, which doesn't believe the best, doesn't seek the perspective of others, Or exercise the patience required to make a thoughtful and substantial judgment. You know, there's a difference between a judgment and an insight. There's the difference between like, wow, there's a fire right there. I can see it. And, hey, I think I smell smoke. And I think it might be coming from that fire. Um, An example of this is um, uh, maybe how to do it poorly um, hey, I could, uh, I, I'm sorry, how to do it well, an insight. Hey, I could be off, but you seem a little angsty. You've been during a lot lately. I could be wrong. Are you okay? Is there anything that I can do? That's an insight. That's okay. That's healthy. Um, maybe the other side of the coin, uh, a bad example. Hey, how's your marriage? You've been angsty lately. Your wife seems sad Sunday. Do y'all need counseling? That's a judgment. You've made up your mind that something is wrong and now you're five steps down without substantiating that something itself could actually be wrong. And I think we do this more than we realize. Well, hey, that person's single because they're stubborn. You know, they got a lot of money so they don't have problems. They don't have our problems because they got money. Or, you know, well, they, they just haven't suffered like we've suffered so they don't know. I think it's more common than we realize to elevate our insights into judgments, into facts that we take to the bank. And here's the thing. You might be right, but you may not be right. And we have to be careful not to be hasty, not to be overly speculative. What scripture helps us here? Jesus himself, Matthew 7, says, So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Wow, the whole Old Testament summed up in that line. Here's another way to say it. What if the person had the same thought about you as you have about them? How would you want them to handle it? How would you want them to handle it? Proverbs 17, 28 says, Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. I love this because this is Job's friends. You know, Job and the whirlwind, things go real bad, real quick. And his friends are just sitting there. And if you read the story, you're going, okay, his friends are there. And then they start talking and you're like, no, 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 stop talking, stop talking. And you actually don't know that they're dumb until they open their mouth. You know, sometimes the best thing we can say is nothing. That's what Job's friends teach us. Proverb 21, 23 also says that the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Man, you can be so convinced by something until you're not. Anybody ever been there? So what's the takeaway? The language of the kingdom teaches us that we're not called to hastily curate stories about people that aren't substantiated, But rather we're called to exhibit the full manifestation of the Holy Spirit by patiently believing the best about people until there's a clear and compelling reason to make a judgment. And even then, that must always be in love. Leads me to the third little category here, harsh speech. What do I mean by harsh speech? I mean speech that is not tender, gentle, or open to reason. This type of language is direct, accentuating truth far more than love. And there was a day, maybe not so much in our distant past, where there was a space for a tell-it-like-it-is guy. You know, I'm just a tell-it-like-it-is guy. I knew a couple of them in seminary, and i am probably been that way too. Uh, and people who would get a pass with harshness under the, the auspices of being a truth teller. Well, I'm sorry if that didn't land well with you. That's just the truth. And uh, man, what does scripture say to that kind of person who thinks that they can just justify their perpetual truthfulness without the packaging of how it's said? One of the most ruling metaphors in the New Testament is that Christ is the bridegroom who loves his church, the bride. Paul says this in Colossians 3.19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Why? Because it's not the way our Savior speaks to us. He is never harsh with us. Jesus has never been harsh to you. Severe, unyielding, firm, tough but not harsh. Paul says in Ephesians 4, be completely humble and gentle. Proverb 15, 1 says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. There is no category in the language of the, king, of the kingdom that abdicates Gentleness. There is no language of the kingdom when we are with Jesus that is not completely humble and gentle. Does this mean that we can't say hard things to one another? No, of course not. Of course it doesn't mean that. Sometimes that's exactly what we need to hear. The truth and love. But what it does mean is that without abdicating responsibility to speak courageously, we must be mindful of any hint of harshness in our words and seek to leave them behind. That we would do well to imitate our Savior with his kind and gentle words. Because those words are the language of the kingdom. Next little category here is passionate speech. What do I mean by this? This one's interesting. I mean, speech that is rooted in the passion of one's convictions that doesn't account for their relative naivete and inexperience, the wisdom they'll gain over time or the perspective of those who are further down the road. James says this much, be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry. And then he'll expand a little bit on that in James four, verses one through two, where he actually tells us why we have angst, why we quarrel, He gives us the answer. He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You don't have what you want, so you covet and you cannot obtain. And so what James is telling us there is our problems begin with our passions. That's the Greek word hedonon, from which we get the idea of hedonism, the desire of what we want, we desire, and we covet. And we don't like the outcome. And that doesn't mean like level 10 stuff, like we go crazy and end up, on the news, uh, end up on the news. This is talking about level one stuff. Maybe the stuff that we don't even show. The reason that we quarrel and we have angst is we want things to be a certain way. And we don't like it when we don't get our way. And our passions are at the beginning of those outcomes. Aquinas helps us with how we work against this uh, with respect to self-control, which is a fruit of the spirit. He says this temperance, which is the old fancy word for self-control. Temperance is simply a disposition of the mind that binds the passions. So the active work of the Holy Spirit is to bind the passion that exists within us. Proverb twenty-one twenty-three says, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Now, I need to clarify a couple things here. Am I saying that all passion is bad? No, not a chance. There's beautiful passion out there. What I'm saying is that unbridled, untested, unseasoned, youthful passion is something that we have to guard against. And it's interesting, especially being at Northway. You know, Northway is the intersection of so many young people, on a particular journey towards a particular outcome that they don't yet know. And what can happen at Northway is Northway can become an echo chamber of like-mindedness with people who are all in the season, the same season of life. And I, again, I'm chief offender here in doing this. And I think what's helpful is this reminder that we're actually not the first to have to figure out anything ever. That there's nothing new under the sun, the Bible tells us. And you go, all right, Matt, what about AI? Okay, I'll give you that. <laughs> but do y'all think that we really are the first people to have to figure out what significant technological advancement? Imagine being a farmer with their mule learning about a cotton gin. Like, we're not the first to have to figure out anything. And so when you think about topics like racial justice, or missions, or how we're gonna raise our kids, or how we're gonna raise our kids in the city, or how we're gonna do church, and what philosophies of church are we going to embark upon? All of those, none of that is new. And yet so many things can be shrouded in idealism, where we think we know, and where the echo chamber of our existence is the affirmation of people who are just like us. And one of the earliest, I mean, I remember in my earliest days of ministry, years ago, when we were kind of, you know, making our manifesto of what we were gonna become, you know what it sounded a whole lot like? It sounded like what what we weren't. And so when you heard like our definite, well, we're not going to be this and we're not going to be this and we're not going to be this. And basically it was just our critique of the place that we came from. And we stood up courageously and told everybody what we're not. And you know what? You can do that a little bit, but there's this question staring you at the face. And that question is, that's great. Who are you then? Because you're not going to get by by defining yourself by what you're not. That's actually cheap. And the way that you'll find who you are, and this is what my wife and I have learned the hard way, is by gleaning from people who are further down the road. Life together is a beautiful thing. Raising your family, your kids together, it's a beautiful thing. But Dana and I say all the time, like, So we have a 13-year-old, we have a nine-year-old, we have a six-year-old. And if you wanna ask us about like how we're doing middle school and high school, the answer is we don't know. Actually got no clue. Pray for us, we're terrified. And what we would love and what we seek out as much as we can are people who are five and 10 and 15 and 20 years down the road. And even if they're not in the exact same situation, it's what principles can I glean from you in the days ahead? Because I don't know. You want to ask about bedtimes for infants and diapers? We're your people. Holler at us, right? We're post that. But we're not post middle school. We're not post height. We don't know. And you don't know. You don't know. And what you need to do is glean, is, is be careful with your passions and glean wisdom from people who are more seasoned than you. And I've learned this the hard way. Trust me. Who's further down the road? Our takeaway here is before we speak, we got to be careful to consider our knowledge of a topic relative to our actual experience, what we might gain from further maturity and wisdom for those who have gone through a similar experience, especially those who are further down the road. Who is further down the road? That's an important question. And if you're upset that there aren't more further down the road people at Northway, so am I. That's why you need to invite your parents to be members here (laughs) and tithe. Okay. Um, So anyway, all right. Next little category crude speech. What do I mean by this? Last little category of the words that don't go with us. Crude speech. Uh, Speech that lacks any evidence of the fruit of the spirit, usually at the expense of a person or a cause. Major clarification here. I will make no apologies whatsoever for humor, for dry humor, for irony, for sarcasm. Uh, I think Bono is right that laughter is eternal because joy is real. I think laughter is God's gift to us. My friend Eric Overton is on the front row and he lives to make fun of me, but he does it in a way that is loving. It is a spiritual gift, okay? But what I'm telling you is um, there's a, there is a laughter that, uh, that reverberates in the kingdom and then there's also a crudeness that we will leave behind when we meet Jesus. Um, there's a kind of speech that's not going with us. And, and this is especially hard for me because a punchline can be just as craving, just, just as much of a craving as booze. Like being the funny guy or the funny guy, whatever. Like it, 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 there's, a, there's a craving there. I remember in middle school, I had just come to faith and hearing verses like Ephesians 4, let no corrupting talk come out of your mind. And I remember just thinking, there there just ain't no way. (laughs) I remember thinking, like, I'm sorry, God. Like, that's just not, you know, it's just not gonna be in the orbit of me not saying, you know, less than scandalous things sometimes. You know, that's just kind of who I am. And yet, God in his love is staring us down the face, calling us up into the kind of person that he wants us to be. And that kind of person includes being, taught and led by Ephesians 4, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such that is good for building up as fits the occasion that may give grace to those who hear. Ephesians 5, 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving Colossians 3, 8, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. There's a kind of purity and standard that God's calling us to. And in the midst of that standard, is the enjoyment of laughter. The Proverb 31 woman laughs at the days ahead. We should laugh the loudest. The gospel actually means that we don't have to take ourselves that seriously. We should be able to laugh And if you think God's not a God of laughter, just Google duckbill platypus. I'm sorry, he created that thing. I should have one behind me on the screen. Forgive me that I don't. He created some things in nature for us to laugh at. He is a God of laughter. And yet in the midst of that, there is a standard. God has created a world where truth, goodness, and beauty should be evident in our words because filth will not follow us into the kingdom of heaven. So those are the words uh, that won't go with us. But what words will go with us? So if that's not the language of the kingdom, what is the language of the kingdom? Briefly, let me talk about it. And again, these are just a few examples. Let me start with this. The words that go with us. Number one, a culture of honor. Paul says in Romans that we are to outdo one another in showing honor. And that's up, that's down and that's in every direction. The current generation, the next generation, the generations ahead, a goal of our existence here should be that I feel honored by you in the way you speak about me. You feel honored about me in the way that I speak about you and in rooms that I'm not in, in rooms you're not in, you are honored in the way that we speak about one another. A culture of honor. Secondly, words of redemption. I'm going to spend a little bit of time here. Words of redemption, or you could say words of reconciliation. I love Proverb 19.11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. You know what this is God telling us? Is that there are some things, little things, and we just got to let them go heaven forbid you become the kind of person that has to call everybody out for every minor micro annoyance that they cause you. Please don't be my friend if you're that way. I don't have time for that, okay? I am so grateful that in my 15 year enduring marriage to my wife, my saint wife, Dana, has overlooked a multitude of offenses, and that we don't have to sit down at the end of every day for me not being the perfect standard of what she wants me to be. Praise God for that. May her tribe increase. But on the other side of that, there are times that, and really the scripture gives us two options here. You let it go or you engage. You go to and you don't go around. There's no sideways talk in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 23 and 24 tells us that if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, then what do you do? You leave your gift there before the altar and you go. You first be reconciled to your brother and then you come offer your gift. That's saying that if anybody has anything against you that you know of, you go and engage that person as soon as you can. And you go, hey, let's work this out, okay? And the reason you work it out is because God's given us the tools. This is what makes the kingdom of God so majestic and glorious that God can take what is hostile and toxic and he can take two courageous people and he can infuse grace and he can make the relationship on the other side stronger than it ever was, That's the way of the kingdom. I don't have time to get into the fullness of Matthew 18, but I'll talk about the first two. These are Jesus's words. The first two steps of Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, or if there is egregious, significant sin in their life, then the Bible says that you go to them alone. You don't go talk about it to people. You go to him alone. And if he hears you, then you've won your brother. Praise God should happen in some way often. Hey, remember this? Can we talk about that? We on the same page? All right, great. I'm sorry. Thanks. Love you. And then uh, if it's more significant, what you do, the Bible says, is uh, if if that person hasn't heard you, well, then you bring a couple other witnesses with you, and uh, and you go, and you engage so as to really legitimate the significance of the, concern, of the concern. And then there's more that involves the church. And we can talk about that another day. But the point is this, you, you never go around. You always go to. And, uh, you know, one of, one, of the, one of the most, you know, famous get arounds is, you know, well, I, I need to process this, right? And you end up processing with another person and that person processes and that person processes someone. And now your insight, which you didn't have the courage to engage is now fodder for 15 people, except the person who may have offended you. And that's the toxicity. That's when hell gets into a place. Uh, there's a, there's a gal who uh, used to be a member here and I'm not the hero of this story, but um, I love this story. And she, uh, she sat me down, this is several years ago, and she said, hey, I need to talk to you. And the first thing that she said was, um, I gotta be honest with you, I've been gossiping about you. And I'm really sorry, I'm convicted. And it's not okay. And I'm frustrated about this and this. And I've been talking to people and that's not God's way and I'm sorry. And, uh, and then I said, okay, well, let's talk about it. And she said a couple things. And I said, wow, well, I'm sorry because I've clearly offended you in a couple ways. Please forgive me. And what's so beautiful about that is, again, we came in unreconciled to that relationship. And 45 minutes later, we were stronger, more committed to the gospel, more committed to one another, and more brother sister than we had ever been prior to that 45 minute meeting because she had the courage to one, show humility and secondly, engage me. That's the language of the kingdom. That's the power of grace and forgiveness at work, actively. And we're stewards of that. We are ambassadors of reconciliation, stewards of that. It's how we get better. It's how we grow. What families don't fight? Any of you have like close brothers and sisters that you've never fought with? That's weird. (laughs) Families fight and then they work it out the right way and they get better and better and better. And we're a family and that's how we have to do it. That's God's way. There's power in the blessing of language, the blessing, the power the Bible talks about of the tongue to heal and bless Proverb 18.21 says, the tongue has the power of life and death. Proverb 12.25 says, anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. Anybody ever been encouraged by somebody, cheered up? Proverb 15.4, the soothing tongue is a tree of life. Proverb 16.24, gracious words are like a honeycomb sweetness to the soul and health to the body. God uses words to bring us life. He should. That's why he made them. Part of the reason he made words is to give us life. And that leads directly to what the scripture calls encouragement. Hebrews 3.13, encourage each other. How often? Every day. First Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another and build one another up. Just as you're doing, what is Encouragement. What are these words that bless? They're words that come from a heart of love to speak to areas of fear that remind us of our need for grace. There's some confusion. Well, does encouragement always a compliment? No, not necessarily, but encouragement always puts courage in somebody. That's what it means. Let me give you some courage through my words of who you are before God. How do we encourage first of all we trust that the Spirit has something to say through you. I remember being uh, in ninth grade at uh, Plymouth Park Baptist Church I had just come to faith and uh, while I was a Christian I was a mess man I was so fearful I was so self-conscious about everything I was this brand new kid didn't have many friends at the church and I was just kind of trying to survive and you know, not draw a lot of attention to myself, but I was so given to fear. I remember being a freshman there and we had just gone to youth camp. There's probably 25 people in the Sunday school class and our leader, his name was Tim Germany. And uh, he says in front of everybody, I think I was a little embarrassed at first, but he just said, I'll tell you what, you know, Matt Younger over there, he said, um, man, I think God's doing something in your life. And I'm really encouraged by you. And I wouldn't be surprised if you help people someday. I wouldn't be surprised if you're a leader in the church one day. And he said that to me. That was 1997. So here I am almost. However many years later, still thankful that he said it. Still remembering it. Um. The other part of this, too, is that specific encouragement goes a long, 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 long way. Right? Like I can say, hey, Eric, you're a good guy. Praise God for you. And that's nice, I guess, right? But what if I say, hey, Eric, man, amidst a lot of challenging things in your life right now, I've seen you really hold on to your faith, I've seen your family flourish. I've seen you continue to make wise choices in the midst of you enduring something really hard. I don't think I've ever seen as much evidence of grace in your life. That's specific. And we do well to speak with as much specificity as we can as we bless one another. Encouragement is not flattery. Mark Twain famously said that he can live two months off a good compliment. That's not what we're trying to do with encouragement. We're not trying to make the person like us, as we're trying to make the person like Christ, right? And so there's a language of the kingdom, Jesus' language, language that goes with us. It's Jesus' language that we can begin now, that we should begin now, a rehearsal of life with God, where God has charged us to begin that rehearsal now and to use the right words and to not waste words, And to leave behind the words that don't go with us and to step towards the words that do. And so what kind of words do you need to leave behind? And what kind of words do you need to step into? At the end of the day, why we speak the way we do in the kingdom is because we have been spoken to by Christ in the same way. Do you know that? The reason that we're to honor one another is that we've been honored by him. The reason that we're to be gentle with one another is that because he's been gentle with us. The reason that we're supposed to speak grace and truth is because he speaks grace and truth to us. The reason that we're supposed to be patient and bear with one another is because he has been patient and born with us. And so what this practice is, is allowing the very life of Christ to be made manifest in you and ask Jesus whose mind we have to come and to take over our lives so that our words will be like the words that we will speak with him and not like the words we'll leave behind. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word and the way you speak to us. And I pray, God, that you would allow us to be a people who speak in the way that you would want us to speak and not speak in the way that we shouldn't speak. And so help us and give us grace in every failure and in every opportunity to grow in Christ's name. Amen.:
0: Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus, so we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11:15 a.m. and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty and goodness of Jesus.